Welcome to Upthinking Finance, a podcast that offers a unique and discerning view of economics and financial planning. Here is your host, Emerson Fersh. Welcome back to another edition of Upthinking Finance. I'm Emerson Fersh. Rather than read a pithy quote uh, to start this episode, I thought it'd be more appropriate with today's guest to share some excerpts from the modern-day Hippocratic Oath, which is a commitment to excellence that members of the medical profession take. It starts with, I solemnly pledge to dedicate my life to the service of humanity. The health and well-being of my patient will be my first consideration. I will respect the autonomy and dignity of my patient. I will maintain the utmost respect for human life. I will not permit considerations of age, disease or disability, creed, ethnic origin, gender, nationality, political affiliation, race, sexual orientation, social standing, or any other factor to intervene between my duty and my patient. I will practice my profession with conscience and dignity and in accordance with good medical practice. I will not use my medical knowledge to violate human rights and civil liberties, even under threat. And it ends with, I make these promises solemnly, freely, and upon my honor. Now, no matter where you stand on the COVID lockdown uh, vaccine issue, I think it's pretty fair to say that a lot of what I just read was ignored or certainly wasn't held to the standard it was meant to be over the last three years here in the U.S. and I'd say globally. Today's guest is going to speak to that as it relates to the healthcare system in Canada. Her name is Deanna McLeod. She completed degrees in immunology and psychology at McMaster University in Ontario, Canada. She worked in the pharmaceutical industry for 10 years in medical marketing and sales and specialized in the field of oncology. She eventually became concerned with a tendency towards bias reporting by some pharmaceutical companies and started Kaleidoscope Strategic in 2000, which is an independent medical research firm that assists clinicians in preparing objective evidence-based guidelines. Her firm has supported hundreds of cancer specialists in preparing more than 40 peer-reviewed publications. And since March of 2020, her team has spent more than 2,000 hours conducting COVID-related research. She serves as the chairperson of the Strategic Advisory Group for the Canadian COVID Care Alliance. And as you listen to this discussion, which I met Deanna, I should say, listening to her give a talk in at the Better Way Conference in Bath, UK in June of 2023. And she gave a talk describing how the pharmaceutical industries had compromised the healthcare system in Canada. And as you listen to this discussion, I think anybody living in Europe and the United States will see some glaring similarities. So it's my pleasure to welcome today, coming to us from Toronto, Canada, Deanna McLeod. Deanna, thank you for joining me on Upthinking Finance today. Well, thanks for having me. I'm glad to be here. So I guess let's just jump right in. When did you begin to realize that the global pharmaceutical company was hijacking the Canadian healthcare system? Well, that's actually a really good question. So just a little bit about my background. I did about 10 years kind of heavy into the pharmaceutical area. That's kind of where I went after I graduated from university. And I would say closer to about the 10-year mark, I started to realize that certain pharmaceutical companies, I mean, I always knew that it was about making money, but I always thought that there was this wonderful intersection between you could make money providing something that was needed and solving a healthcare problem that needed to be solved. And so I never thought that there, you know, these two things were completely separate. But what I did notice as I kind of was into it a little bit longer was that there were some companies more than others, and often was the case that they would emphasize the benefits of a product while minimizing safety. In fact, if you went to sales training, what they would do is they would say, 
know, redirect and emphasize the benefits. And anytime they bring up a safety objection, minimize it and try and get them distracted again. Almost like, you know, one of those toddler exercises, just change the topic and just go over here. Right. And I was just like, hmm, this is interesting. But anyways, I, we launched our firm and, and the firm when we launched it was in 2000. And, and the goal that we had was really to provide the support that clinicians in Canada needed to do systematic evidence-based reviews of literature so that they could make informed choices with respect to healthcare and to help their patients. And so that whole pharma thing was behind me. And, you know, this was our new focus. And, you know, I did interact and do, you know, our firm does research for pharmaceutical companies. So I always had a pulse on it. And so a lot of the time when I would get in touch with somebody from a pharmaceutical company, I'd make a contact and we'd work on a project or something like that. And then I'd go to call them about a year later and, you know, oh, so-and-so no longer works for us, you know, and I'm like, oh, okay, where do they go? Oh, they went to global. I'm like, global, what's global, right? And this was just like a continual pattern right across the way anybody that was bright, anybody that was really a performer in pharma would get sucked up to global, you know, like this big alien spaceship or something like that. It's like, where'd they <laughs> the go? Global. I'm like, what? But anyways, I didn't really think too much about it. And then I started to get a couple research projects with global pharmaceutical companies. And then I realized, whoa, that's where the money is. And that's where the resources are. Like, they've got the best talent. They've got all the resources because they basically just kind of bring the, the brightest and the best from all over. And then they stick them up in here. And then what they do is they they make these plans that then they... You know, it used to be that the Canadian group would get a marketing plan for Canada. Now you basically have got this strategist and these these global strategists, and they make a plan that's good for them across all countries. And then they implement it to one degree or another in each country, depending on what's most profitable for them. Hmm. Right. So all of a sudden, we went from being able to say, you know, I'm just imagining this uh, to a pharmaceutical company, you know, you need to play by our regulations and you need to deal well with us because if you don't, then you don't get any business in Canada and therefore you don't really have any business at all. I mean, maybe the States is always more, but that was always a, you know, we were an interesting market and, and something to contend for. But all of a sudden now global pharmaceutical companies can do almost anything all anywhere in the world. And so what they are in a position to do now is they can actually make terms and conditions with countries and say, I'm saying this theoretically, in the sense that if you don't want to do things our way, then maybe you won't get top access to, say, the next vaccine in a pandemic, right? And so therefore, they're in a Mm. position to be able to negotiate even with countries and say, if you want to be first in line for our next vaccine or our next product, then, you know, maybe you need to do some things for us rather than we do things for you. And it was really interesting because I kind of knew that this global phenomenon was happening, but I never actually saw it manifest fully until the COVID-19 pandemic, when all of a sudden you've got this perfectly executed, coordinated, obvious marketing plan. Because I mean, I can tell one from a mile away. And you've got your pre-marketing phase and your pre-marketing phase is all about underscoring the need for the product in the minds of the future consumer. So what better way to do that than to invest heavily in media and get them to you know, create some media hysteria. What better way to lock down people and mask them, you know, than to say the only way out of your jail, in a sense, would be to get this mRNA product, right? And then, of course, you have the marketing phase where the goal is to convince somebody that something is safe and effective. 
Uh, and I mean, I think we've heard that over and over again. <laughs> Vaccines okay. are safe and effective. Yeah, we could have a conversation just on this part alone. So here's a question because you brought up something about how far back does this, I, I don't know if the word was conditioning, but how much far back does this preparation go? Because that's where my mind goes. It's like, okay, you can't just have convinced people that they need to take a vaccine as an example. I mean, there has to be some kind of, you know, then you go back to flu vaccines. You know what I'm saying? I mean, how far back? Because it, it, it seems that, it, like you said, there's a coordinated plan, but it seems to me too that there's maybe, or maybe I'm just imagining this, that there's some kind of groundwork that's been laid over the previous, say, 15 to 20 years, or is that just, mm-hmm. no, does that sound I, right? I think that this whole notion of the global pharmaceutical companies and getting organized on an in, at a supranational level has been going on probably at least for 10 to 15 years. And if we just think about the vaccine uh, area, there's a few things that you need to know if we're going to talk finances in terms of vaccines. And it's almost like a profitability continuum, if you might. So you've got on this end here, you've got a treatment for a rare disease. You know, maybe 100 people in the world have it and you're the unlucky person to have that thing. And, And so, of course, there's developing the designer drug for that rare disease, but the cost of actually developing something for that rare disease is is too high to justify the development of it because you'll never get the return. There's just not a big population. So that's kind of the, the least profitable thing on this side. And then as the market increases, and I'm when I'm saying market, it's the patient group that you can market your drug to increases, right? So if you get a, a bigger and bigger market, then the chances of you getting a return on your investment grows. So it's almost how they think about it. So they're thinking I need to have a, you know, a, a suitable market. And then, then I know how much research and development costs I have to go in. And therefore I know that if I'm, I'm going to be able to make my money back, given that it's going to take X amount of time to, for, to complete development, I've got a 20 year patent. That means I've got, you know, X amount of time, Y amount of time to recoup my investment. So if you actually think about that, where they're always having to make an investment in in the clinical development, you have a limited patent, and then you need to recoup your investment on the other side. And your ability to recoup your investment and the level of clinical development depends on the market that you're looking at. What they tend to want to do is they want to move from very, very sick people that are, there's not very many of those, right? to bigger and bigger and bigger markets so that they can recoup their investment. And so, of course, I work, my expertise is mostly in cancer research. And so what you see there is you basically see them go from advanced late stage cancer to, you know, wanting to give it right after you get surgery, right? as a prevention for the return of the treatment. And then, I mean, there's even studies that are going, if you're a high risk for cancer, maybe we'll treat you even before you're sick, right? So that's on this side of the continuum where you're you're going for the biggest market and you're trying to convince people they should take a treatment, maybe even if they don't even need it in order to prevent it from recurring, say, for instance, but you still have the condition. But with vaccines, the beautiful thing about vaccines from a profitability standpoint is that if done properly, you can convince somebody who's not even sick, who's not even at risk of getting sick to take a vaccine, right? There's two prongs to it. You can convince them that there's the possibility that they could be that 0.001% that is going to get the severe disease manifestation, right? And then you just yeah. paint that really, really big, you know, just focus in on that. So then everybody's like, ah, I don't want to be that 0.01%, right? And so then maybe they'll take it for their own good. But even better, what you can say is you need to take it in order to protect so-and-so. So if you take the vaccine, then you're protecting your neighbor. And then you can basically leverage compassion for your ability to sell your thing. So then there's two things you want to basically use fear 
So it's an appeal to emotion. So you appeal to the emotion of fear or you appeal to compassion in order to motivate somebody who's healthy to take a product that they don't otherwise need in this moment. Like they're not sick. So in a lot, a lot, a lot of time and energy has gone into refining the means by which you sell vaccines. Again, because it's a big leap to try and convince somebody that's healthy to get something that they don't need necessarily right now in this moment. But the payoff, right? Anybody who then is healthy or alive is a possible customer. Then of course, there's the benefit of getting it on the pediatric schedule. So if you want to get it on the pediatric schedule, then all that you have to do is is show up, you're a perfectly healthy little baby. And they're like, Oh, they could get a sickness. So let's get a vaccine into them. They might be the 0.0 whatever percent who might get exposed, even if this isn't even circulating in this country right now. And we don't want them to have that terrible thing. So we love our baby, we'll take it. So then, of course, they've got vaccine and then you've got pediatric vaccine. But the penultimate, the ultimate profitability is respiratory vaccines. Because with a respiratory vaccine, you can convince somebody who's healthy that they not only have to take it once, but every single year or even better, every time a variant changes, just get a booster, right? So then you've got the money, the gut cash flow coming in. So same clinical development cost, right? But an incredible market and then repeat business. So respiratory vaccines are by far and away the ultimate prize. And of course, you mentioned the flu vaccine. How long has this been going on? Well, the NIH and Anthony Fauci have been working on the flu vaccine and growing the market for the flu vaccine for years. But the problem with the flu vaccine is they've got a variant that changes, right? So if you're going to convince people that you're going to need to take a vaccine every year because you're convincing them that the flu has changed to a degree that it can now evade your immune system and you need to be taking something to enhance your immune system again, then you actually have to be able to have a platform that allows you to adapt. But up until now, the platforms that have been used to develop vaccines in general take up to 10 years to go through all the clinical development. And for the flu vaccine, you know, they've done these things where they've can do expedited review and they rely on the NIH. And, you know, so they they come out with these adaptations, but they still have this long and drawn out means of production. It's it's a little bit cumbersome. It takes time. So between, you know, compressed development time cycle and the production cycle, they still kind of miss it a lot of the time, right? I mean, everybody knows that the flu vaccine is like, I don't bother with the flu vaccine. It doesn't work. I still get the flu anyways. It's never, you know, maybe it was the wrong strain, you know, so it's not a home run, right? Like they're not able to convince most people that they need the flu vaccine. So then if you think about mRNA technology, right? mRNA technology is basically, you don't actually have to do the production. You can get the person themselves to do the production, right? So if you're going to be making an attenuated vaccine, for instance, you have to create the virus in in hosts, and then you have to purify it. And, you know, I'm not 100% sure all the different steps that it goes through, but it's a fairly elaborate process to make sure that you've got this attenuated vaccine or virus that then then is administered in a vaccine, and then your body makes antibodies to it. But what if you could get the person themselves to be the factory for producing the antigen, right? Which is what the spike protein is. So if we give them the information package to produce the antigen, which is what you're going to need to make an antibody, that cuts out a whole production level. So that shortens your timelines, right? 
And if mRNA technology is almost like 3D printing, but nanotechnology, then you basically just cook it up in the lab. You don't have to go through this whole thing where you're doing clinical development and everything. You can cook it up. And then basically, you've got this very short time frame where you can pivot really quickly. So people have had their eye on mRNA technology for a long time. The unfortunate thing is that it's classified as gene therapy. And so gene therapy, if you look at the FDA standards, takes 10 to 15 years to test. So then again, if you want to pivot so that you can you know, convince the customer that you, you need to take this annually, you can't have a 10 to 15 year development cycle, right? So then they're basically saying, well, what we'll do is we'll pitch this gene therapy, right, as a vaccine, because it's got the platform adaptability that we want in order to be able to pivot appropriately. So that let's do that, right? So then they're like, everybody was all in. They're like, this is innovation. This is going to give us that pivot, that platform pivot that we need to capture that respiratory market that is so elusive that we weren't able to capture with the the flu vaccine. And so if you actually look at investments and, and what's in development, you can see that, that, you know, I was just looking at, you know, an announcement from Sanofi, which is like the biggest vaccine manufacturer. And they're basically saying, you know, we're expecting to, I don't know, I can't even remember what it was, double our profits or something like that, because we're going to be switching over everything to mRNA technology, right? Because it basically no, no production. The person is the production. And then you've got this ability to, basically just program mRNA. And then all they have to do is make mRNA, deliver it to somebody, and then they're the production facility. So you've got this adaptable platform. Now, here I have gone on on this whole thing. And I think where I was going with all of that is to say that mRNA vaccines are the way that they wanted to grasp that ring that was the penultimate prize. A vaccine platform that could pivot enough to be able to do this seasonal vaccine or an annual vaccine platform. So it had that pivotability. And I mean, if you actually think about it, when they first started coming out, they're like, yeah, you need to get this. And then you're going to, you know, they had this whole subscription platform idea cooked up right from the beginning. We're just like, every time there's a new variant, we'll just tell them to get a booster. This is amazing, right? Like we just got like the cash flowing in. I got to just, you you said so many things here. Um, Okay. So First of all, now I know we've all learned how why Pfizer was the fourth most profitable company in the US last year at what did I say at $31.3 billion. So now you've explained that. You know, your point is right because what's worse, getting sick or or not being able to breathe. So you're right. I mean, I get why you're saying the respiratory thing, I and mean, that makes complete sense. You had mentioned, and you've covered some of this, you brought up this approval time, the 10 to 15 years that's required to really make the claim that something is safe and effective. Um, yeah, yeah. Everybody was saying that. And I remember thinking, well, how can you make that claim when you don't have any kind of history? You know, I mean, I'm not a guy who, underst- you know, I'm not in this. I mean, I'm not in the industry, but listening to you talk about these, these drugs and how these things are being put together. It sounds like in our business, you know, derivatives and all this stuff that blew up the economy, you know, in 2008, you know, it's, it's just somebody's smarter, 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 and, you know, until something bad happens. But You had mentioned something in your talk about agile regulations. And is this kind of an example of it? Because I heard a lot from some of the people that spoke in your session just about the tentacles of the pharmaceutical industry. I mean, owning journals, if I'm remembering this right. I mean, it seemed like anything related to any kind of medical anything 
was controlled, you know, centrally controlled by these global companies. Is that a fair statement? Am I correct? Yeah, I would I would probably agree with you that the tentacles are everywhere. It was kind of one of those things where, you know, like, I don't know, I'm trying to think about this thing. But you know, if you see something moving, you kind of see this ripple on the surface, and you're like, Oh, what's going on? And then you rip it off. And you're like, Oh, it's like an infestation, right? It's kind of like one of those things where Mm. you're like, this is very strange, what's happening. And then, you know, our team, we have a team here at CCCA in Canada, that's the Canadian COVID Care Alliance, we've been following the money to try and sort, you know, unravel this whole thing. And you're absolutely right that there's tentacles everywhere. But let me first touch on the agile regulations, which I think will then lend us to be able to speak about how these tentacles have come down across many different areas. But you were right to point out that the technology platform is great, because it's simple to produce, you know, to just kind of bioprint or nanoprint mRNA, and then to have a human body be the production facility for the production of the spike protein, which is then going to create the antigen for the antibody, which is what you need in order to develop immunity, for instance. And that's what the COVID-19 mRNA vaccines, I call them vaccines, but they're really mRNA products. They actually teach your body how to produce a pathogen part that makes you sick of COVID-19, the spike protein, and then you develop an antibody to that. So I just want to clarify that, but you still have the problem of how do you get these things approved without doing all of the clinical testing, the clinical development cycle that takes that long time. So what you really should have is you should have a preclinical development phase, right? And I always like to summarize it very easily in saying you tested in cells, you tested in tissues, and you tested in systems in animals or in, in, in the lab in order to make sure that it's safe to test in humans. So remember that the adages first do no harm. So you want to minimize harm. And so then you only test it in humans where after it's been extensively tested in animals and in the laboratory. And then what you do is you test it in a small group of people to make sure you get your dose right. That's a phase one. And then you're a little bit bigger group of people to make sure that it's safe. And then if it's passed all of those tests, then you do a large randomized controlled trial. And that will allow you to compare two arms, a ran, you know, a treatment arm and, you know, either a placebo or a standard of care, some sort of comparator. And that'll allow you to prove whether something is safe because you'll compare those two arms. And the only difference between the two arms is the intervention and effective. And of course, running a a properly conducted randomized controlled trial would probably take about, you know, if we were thinking about COVID-19, in order to get enough events for severe disease, which should be your primary endpoint, because that's what we're afraid of, we're afraid of severe outcomes, it would take maybe three to five, let's just say three years. You know, it should take about three years to get because the the duration of the sickness is, is two weeks. So it runs its course in two weeks. So I would say three years would probably be enough time to be able to prove that something was safe or effective and that it prevented severe outcomes, which is really what we're worried about because we're never really worried about COVID whenever it's not severe, right? Because it's like a flu. I mean, we've all gone through it. We can handle it ourselves. What we're really afraid of, what they told us that we needed to be afraid of is the hospitalization, the ventilators and the death, right? Yeah. (laughs) So that's the trial that you need to do. But waiting to have a trial finish and doing all of that stuff. So what they've done in Canada is Health Canada basically regulates clinical trial conduct. And it also regulates what's approved and what's not and what standards need to be met. So in Canada, what happened was they basically had passed, I don't know whether it's a law or an amendment to our food and drug regulations, but 
it basically permitted them to do something called an adaptive clinical trial design, which then allowed them to kind of compress all of those stages together. So they were kind of running the animal trials while they were doing the human trials. Mm. And then they did minimal preclinical testing, like they only did toxicity. Usually what you would want to do is genotoxicity, which is if you're dealing with mRNA or a gene therapy, you want to know if it's going to impact your genome. So genome toxicity, is there going to be any untoward, unintended consequences to tampering with somebody's mRNA? You'd want to do oncotoxicity, which is, is it going to cause cancer? You'd want to do tetragenicity, which is, is it going to fall cause any malformations? And reprotoxicity, is it going to impact fertility? So you, you really want to do all of those tests before you go into humans, but they just have never done them. They did a couple toxicity studies in rats, and it was almost, if not fully in parallel with the preclinical trials, and they collapsed the phases of the trial. So it was kind of a phase one that rolled into a two that then rolled into a three. So it was kind of like this crazy adaptive clinical trial design, and that allowed them to compress the timeline needed to do the things and to run all of the stages of a clinical trial. Because if you're doing them in tandem, as if you really can and, and do no harm, is kind of hard to imagine. But it helps with innovation and getting those mRNA technologies and that respiratory platform there. <laughs> so on that point, from a business standpoint, they're running after that, you know, that prize. So they've got this mRNA technology and they've got the the regulate. So they've got the adaptive clinical trial design. But then what they really want to do is you want to be able to do something called a notice of compliance with conditions or an expedited approval. And I know that they have this in the States and we kind of monitor that all the time. It's kind of accelerated approval. And what that does is it basically says that they'll look, they'll, they'll do a rolling review. So they'll look at the early data from a clinical trial. And so they took a sneak peek at, at the COVID-19 trials at two months, right? Two months in, they said, Oh, let's take a peek. It's kind of preliminary analysis. And they looked in and they said, Oh my gosh, look at this two months in and it's already safe and effective, right? So. They basically just took a two-month peak without any of the pre-testing and they said, all right, we're good to go. And then they said, well, it would be unethical if we continued to run this clinical trial, you know, while all these people need this thing. So if we're going to put it on the market, it would be unethical to keep some people in the placebo arm of this randomized controlled trial while everybody else is getting this treatment. So what we need to do is we need to unblind the trial and ethically offer the people on the placebo arm, the treatment so that they can get the same benefits. And so what they did is they've dismantled the trial now. So you can no longer say that it's safe and effective past two months. So we only know at two months if it's safe and effective based on the preliminary analysis. And preliminary analysis are generally unreliable because there's a lot of people who haven't been followed up sufficiently and there's a lot of people who drop out and you're the number of events that you have. So you want to look at the number of people who haven't completed their follow-up and have dropped out and they compare that to the events. And if you look at that in those phase three trials, what you see is that there were so many people that dropped out and so many people who hadn't completed follow-up that you, th these, these trial results at two months were really meaningless mm. because the event rate was so low compared to the number of people that weren't included in the analysis. But if you can say that the trial is over and that it's unethical, and then you can undo, dismantle your, your randomized control trial, then there's no way that you can ever prove that something's harmful. So what we want to do with the proper regulation is make them prove that it's safe before it hits the market. Therefore, nobody gets harmed. 
But if they can convince you that they should let it go onto the market early and that they'll monitor safety afterwards, and then they dismantle the randomized controlled trial, then there's no means of proving harm. There's no accountability. There's no accountability. And so what they do is there's different ways that you can monitor safety. I feel like we're kind of going off on a tangent here, but there's different ways that you can monitor safety. The most expensive and the best is a randomized controlled trial where you have somebody monitor, you know, the patient's coming in to see their doctor and the doctor's checking them over, they're checking their vitals, they're checking to make sure that they're okay, they're taking lab work, they're looking for problems. There's this very close and careful monitoring of both clinical symptoms and subclinical symptoms. So they're really watching out to make sure that somebody's not getting harmed. Well, of course, with these clinical trials for the COVID-19 jab, what they did was they basically just gave somebody an app and they said, go home. And if there's a problem, just kind of, you know, fill in the data on your app. So there's no subclinical testing. There's nobody looking for D-dimer. There's nobody looking for inflammation markers. And these people, they're just kind of taking this stuff. So they're kind of beginning with the premise or the presupposition that it's safe. Therefore, we don't really need to test it very much because all vaccines are safe, right? And therefore, they kind of sneak this gene therapy in as a vaccine so that they can get their mRNA technology so that they can pivot their platform so they can get that respiratory vaccine prize, right? So it's kind of interesting. So the whole agile regulations thing is for in Canada a few years ago, and it was actually the end of 2019, there was a bill that was passed that created a regulatory backdoor to our food and drug regulations. And it's for advanced therapeutic products. And, and purportedly, it's for any product that isn't able to go through the normal course of treatment. But lo and behold, the first drug that went through that mRNA, the, the regulatory backdoor was the mRNA technology. I don't know how it got there. You mm. know, you wouldn't think maybe, you know, they probably said, well, we're in a state of emergency. We have to put it through the back door. So I guess all that you have to do is manufacture an emergency and you can stick anything through the back door. <laughs> but anyways, the back door basically meant that it can get approved based on this preliminary data and put on the market before it's actually proven that it's safe and effective. In fact, the back door, all that you need to do is provide sufficient evidence to support the conclusion that the benefits outweigh the risks. So before it was prove that it's safe, prove that it's effective, prove that the benefits outweigh the risk. Now it's provide sufficient evidence to support the conclusion. I don't know. I mean, I don't even know what that is, that the benefits outweigh the risk. So for you just throw away that proven safety piece, we just just got it right out of the picture, right? So that was the last thing that needed to be done in order to get those drugs approved. Now, interestingly enough, and this kind of loops back to our corporate global pharma thing, is that there's, it was called a health and biosciences economic strategy table that was, that was made in Canada and it was led by industry. So our government invited industry in and basically said, we want you to grow our health and biosciences economy. I'm sure that they called their global hand, you know, their friends in global and said, what should I say? I've got this amazing opportunity. And they're like, Tell them to deregulate. They need to create a regulatory backdoor so we can get our products through faster, right? And so that's what they said. And of course, our government, they basically said, if you want to attract international investment, big money, big pharma, global pharma, global money, if you want to attract that to Canada, if you want to be a contender, if you want to be part of this new global economy, then you're going to need to deregulate and create this backdoor so that we can get our products through in a way that's more, you know, that's expedited. And so therefore, you can kind of see that creep in through our regulatory framework, right? And who 
on earth would ever think it's a good idea to ask the industry people what we should be doing with the regulatory (laughs) framework that should be policing the industry people because we know that given a chance, they're just going to go for the money because that's what they're about. We, we, they know nobody, nobody is hiding the fact that their primary goal is to go for the money. Yeah. You know, to build, to make profit. And, but we always want them to do it in a way that's safe and effective. And so that framework is important to hold them accountable. Anyway, so that's kind of how they circumvented our regulatory framework and they got those mRNA shots out there. And of course, it was a complete boldface lie in Canada, at least when they basically said, oh, yeah, it's gone through the standard regulatory process, which wasn't the case at all. That wasn't standard for gene therapy, which is 10 to 15 years of safety testing. It wasn't even standard. I mean, it might have been, it seems like it's more akin to how they approve vaccines, which is on preliminary data, but it certainly didn't go through the regular regulatory process of proving safety and proving efficacy and also ensuring that no harm was done to Canadians. You're right about the strength of marketing because I remember, well, two things. One was I always kind of went back to the survival rate, which was 98 or 99, whatever the percentage was. I mean, that was kind of like, I just, I couldn't reconcile this, this panic to the fact that it's a survival rate, at least in the U.S., was, you know, 98.9% or whatever it was, right? But I remember there was this big thing that a lot of people were throwing around where Pfizer got approved. And there was this FDA report that came out. And I actually read it. And it was like, I don't know, you know, 10, 15 pages. But it was on the European version, which was Cominardi, I think it was called. Mm-hmm. And I went through and read this report. And the only thing that was approved was additional testing. And it was some of the things you brought up, you know, the effects on pregnancy. There was a whole bunch on heart side effects. And then there were some specialized ones for a couple of corporations or governmental agencies, whatever. But it wasn't any approval that it was safe. It was approval that they could do more trials. And this whole, you know, and it's like, gosh, you, you got to read stuff. You had mentioned, and I think this is an important point I want to make sure we get to. You talked about, I think, my words, but the biggest casualty of this whole process was the loss of informed choice. Could you speak to that? Because to me, that's, I think, really the critical piece in all this, because this goes against the last part of the, you know, I think I shared that part about, uh, you know, we'll not use our medical knowledge to violate human rights and civil liberties. And to me, that's a complete contradiction to this oath. Yeah, well, we're going to get to levels of complexity here. (laughs) Well, we have, you know, 10 to 15 minutes left. So, okay, so let me see if I can land this, but I think it's a really good thing to consider. So usually when you're getting a treatment, at least I'm sure it's the same way everywhere, but, you know, the average consumer is not able to decipher complex clinical data to figure out, like to read a clinical trial and say, is this good for me? And is this not? And how does this compare to my other options? So usually what we have is healthcare providers who are informed, have the medical background, they're informed. They also know us, they know our clinical background, they know our medical history, and they're able in the, in the intimate conversation to basically assist us in making an informed choice. So they should be able to list the benefits of a drug and the risks of the drug in the context of our particular clinical paradigm and support us in making an informed choice, which usually requires that you're free from pressure, coercion, or fear. All of those things are not informed choices if you've got those things coming in. So Our, you know, in Canada, our healthcare provider can't read everything. So then basically they've got a group of specialists 
that should be multidisciplinary in nature, and they read the literature and they make recommendations or guidelines. And these guidelines should be independent, they should be balanced, they should be evidence-based, and they should be proportionate to the level of evidence in the sense that you wouldn't make a strong recommendation for something in the absence of strong evidence. If it's like when we we develop a guideline with doctors, they basically say, well, there's not a lot of evidence for this. So I recommend it, but it's really my clinical opinion. It's a weak recommendation because there's not a lot of evidence to prove it, but you could try it if you want. Here's the benefits and here are the risks. And so, you know, you've got this kind of mechanism that supports this informed choice for the patient. Well, if you're wanting to maximize your vaccine business, you don't really want to have a healthcare provider as in the way. Yep. Let's just put it that way. It would be much easier and you'd get much better leverage for your time and energy if you basically just had to change one person's mind about whether something is good for a population or not, rather than have to go through the effort of changing all of these healthcare providers' minds. And, and you know, they're very good at it. I mean, they're at conferences and they support educational programs. And you're right, they sponsor journals in order to kind of get their fingers in to that healthcare provider-patient relationship and try and help tip the risk-benefit ratio in their favor, right? But what if you could convince public health that they were really the ones that were to make the recommendation for everybody, right? So if you go up to public health and you basically say, you know, your job is to minimize disease and to, you know, the health and well-being of your population and we know that the most expensive budget item for you is, you know, oh, government is the cost of these healthcare providers. And also, at least in Canada, especially because we're a single payer system, the cost of managing all that disease. What if I came along and for $10.99, I can give you an injection that would erase the need for a healthcare provider and would also erase the need for treatment and disease management and hospitalization costs, right? This would be a great cost benefit for you because you'd be able to prevent all of these very costly things. So it's in your best interest for you to partner with us in the development of vaccines so that we can prevent all of this terrible disease. And of course, it's also good for people because who wants to get sick? So this whole relationship between public health and the pharmaceutical companies had goes way back. I mean, I don't even know. It probably back as further than, than I go. I mean, I've been in the industry for 30 years. It's probably longer than that. But for sure, in my early career, you saw the external affairs group, you know, working and, you know, just developing those relationships. And I would almost say that now they're indistinguishable. If you're a public health, your vaccine, like your vaccine is one of your primary tools. So they've really infiltrated. It used to be nutrition, clean water, sanitary. That was what public health was about, right? Now it's vaccines are like a major plank in that whole thing. Mm. So then what you need to do now, if you're a global pharma and you want to leverage, so you've got, you've basically pivoted recommendation for vaccine use from the healthcare provider relationship. And it's a protective relationship where the healthcare provider wants to protect the patient out from that. And now you've got a public health official that can now make recommendations. And so that you don't need to worry about those healthcare providers, they create vaccine clinics. You can get them at the pharmacy. You can get them at a pop-up clinic. They just basically hire their own staff, right? And so now gone is informed choice because these people who are vaccinating don't know you. They don't know your background health and they're not even in a position to be able to clearly articulate the benefits and the risks of the vaccine for you. You'll hear a lot about, let's go ask your healthcare provider and let me give you the shot, right? Like it's like... (laughs) 
So yeah. basically, people can just walk into vaccine clinics. So if you if you get enough, so then all of a sudden, media becomes the mouthpiece for public health officials. And one of the things that happens in an emergency in Canada is that the media then take the cue to, they basically go into emergency mode and they help the emergency quarterback to communicate the message to bring people safely through the emergency. So what usually happens and what should have happened in Canada is you have an emergency manager, like a professional manager that has a pandemic plan. And he basically is somebody that is a professional manager can do risk benefit analysis across all sectors of society, including kind of has a medical consultant to him. But if you can actually make the public health official, the quarterback, then they get control of the media. Then they basically can just send their messaging which is a pro-vaccine message to all the people. And then the media then become in lockstep with the public health official who's in lockstep with their global contact, which is the World Health Organization, right? And then who is the World Health Organization? And the World Health Organization (laughs) is funded by the Gates Foundation. Right, tall donors. heavily, Heavily invested in vaccines, right? And Gavi, which is heavily invested in vaccines. and. Blah, 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 blah. So you can see how these global corporations have kind of come down through the World Health Organization, down through public health, and then they basically get direct access by creating these emergencies to the public. They can basically now communicate directly to the public, circumvent the healthcare practitioner relationship, and circumvent the need to do informed choice. So now all that you hear is, what are you talking about? Vaccines are safe and effective for everybody. And in fact, it, you know, there are no exceptions in Canada. You know, you, you weren't even allowed to get a religious exception. There was no like, there was no exceptions for anything. I'm like, you haven't even done oncotoxicity. We don't even know if this is going to cause cancer and there's no exceptions, right? Like, anyway, right. I mean, there were no exemption letters. You know, there was nothing you could do. It was like it, public health was on steroids. But anyways, that's the money train. You know, those are the relationships that I think shaped it. And so pharma has been working diligently to move, especially for vaccines, because I mean, that's that pentultimate prize, move vaccines out of the public, you know, the the doctor-patient relationship into the public's health sphere, and to extend the clinics and their ability to reach the public directly through media and their vaccine clinics, so that then they can direct the population and, and it ends up being a one-size-fits-all solution rather than this customized, personalized, informed solution that you get when you're dealing in the traditional system. Yeah, that point, you know, and you think about it. I mean, when you really just step back and think about it, because I've had, I've been fortunate in my life to have, you know, what do you, what's your primary physician? Um, one was a, you know, until we moved out here in California, it was a friend of, you know, his son, there, our kids went to school together. We could have these honest conversations about, you know, whatever was going on and to remove that. And then, I, and, and when you were talking about the media, I'm just thinking of the CNN clock with the death toll chart every night. I mean, and so all of a sudden people are led to making decisions, as you said, based on fear and a drive through, you know, they were doing, they were doing vaccines behind a, 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 this like family fun center over here where we live now. I mean, in, in the parking lot, mm-hmm. and, you know, in the moment, it's hard for people. I mean, everybody's human. And if the fear kicks in, it's hard to see that. But you look at it now and it's like, and I mean, it just seems ridiculous, really. You know, mm-hmm. I, I mean, it's easy to say it's hindsight, but let me ask you this, because um, I really am grateful for your candor. Have you had any pushback? Because then you're pretty, you, I mean, you're a very credible 
person with experience in all the right areas. I mean, do you ever run into trouble? Is that a fair question? Trouble in what sense do do I get some people say that, you know, you're full of it for sure, right? Yeah. But, you know, I think for myself, I try and, and just say the facts, right? Yeah. Uh, and so if, if when you're analyzing clinical data, it's either the data is there or the data is not there. Right. So if you just say what the data is and people, I really believe that people can make informed choices. And we talked about how one of the ways that they promote these things is an appeal to fear or an appeal to compassion. So it's an emotional appeal. Right. So it's a manipulation. But the other thing that they do is an appeal to authority. Right. And so they basically say, you know, oh, we're the experts. We know the science and you don't. So listen to us and stop, you know, shut up and go get your shot. I have a different view. I have a view that people are imbued with a lot of common sense and a lot of a, a, and, and a good ability to to discern whenever given the chance. So what I try and do is I try and present the facts, whether it's the facts about the data and, you know, the facts about where the money goes is just it's it's out there. I'm not making anything up. And so then I think that when you do look at the facts, then I think that all of a sudden, all of that confusion around the fear and all of those appeals, it just kind of drops away, right? And you and you basically think, no, actually, that makes sense. And I'm, I'm able to wrap my mind around that. I don't need to have a PhD or an MD or whatever it is. And so yeah. our view is to really try and bring the evidence and the facts down to everyday language. And we've been doing that. We've been supporting clinicians and doing that for 23 years in our company. So. I feel that if you tell people the honest truth, then they can figure it out. And if they want to do some pushback, it gets pretty hard. And so we don't get a lot of people who push back because then they would have to contest the facts. No, that's great. Uh, you know, you brought up a really good point. Well, you've brought up a bunch of good points, but your comment about discernment. I think if there's one thing that for me personally has come out of this whole COVID thing, it's really been the ability to rely on my, as you said, common sense, intuition spirit of truth, whatever, you know, whatever that is for, for everybody. I, I think that's been a, a real gain to not get enamored with um, titles and tiaras, as it's been said, and to really yeah. look at, like you said, facts and make a decision, you know? So here's the last question. If you're a person who's looking for the facts, a, a more objective view of things than is, is, you know, you're going to find if you just Google up COVID research, where do you go? Is there other places where you could recommend where people could really find, you know, research or information that that is not biased that will allow them to make their own kind of conclusions? Yeah, well, I mean, we were at the Better Way conference and so, you know, the, right. the World Council of Health, they do a fantastic job of, you know, they've got a diverse group of experts that really tackle some important topics and I I feel that they're facts based. Here in Canada, we have something called the Canadian COVID Care Alliance and our, our organization, which is called COVID Sense, you know, the arm of our, our main company is Kaleidoscope Strategic, and that's how you and I got in touch. But our COVID arm is called COVID Sense. And so we have a website called COVID Sense. If you just Google that. And there's some videos there, but we've been partnering more and more with Canadian COVID Care Alliance because we just have a broader group of clinical experts and with more people, you can tackle more topics. And so you'll get a full cadre of good balanced information there. And one thing, just a little plug is we're working on a new campaign at Canadian COVID Care Alliance. So maybe viewers, your listeners might be interested, but it's on COVID and pregnancy. And yes. the reason why we're doing that is because although they've stopped pushing the jab on the general population, they are still going after what they deem to be high risk populations. And unfortunately, due to some 
shoddy science, they categorized pregnant women as high risk. The types of studies that they did, they used to do that were were just just really bad. I'm going to get into it in the campaign, but we've analyzed all those trials and, you know, there's a lack of data, you know, not controlling for proper variables, applying stats that they got in symptomatic people to asymptomatic women. I mean, there's a lot of breaches in how they should have treated that data. But unfortunately, they've been categorized as high risk and these jabs weren't really tested in pregnant women and yet they went ahead and gave it to them. And of course, there's two lives to consider when you're pregnant. You've got yourself, which is you know a young woman in reproductive age getting a, a drug that hasn't been tested for reprotoxicity is not a good idea, first of all. But secondly, you've got this unborn child that's in a delicate process of formation. And so any type of introduction of a pathogen like the spike protein or the lipid nanoparticles, all of which are toxic, that tender development stage could be very, very dangerous. And so in Canada, they're continuing to push it in that group. And so what we've done is we've, we're working to, we've done a complete analysis of the data, which we hope to be, you know, to, it gives a history of why we want to be extra safe in pregnancy. It goes through the data and why there was troubles with the ones that were the, the data that they used to categorize them as high risk. And then it talks about the lack of safety and efficacy for these shots in pregnant women, especially for the boosters. This ongoing introduction of these shots hasn't been tested in terms of safety for the, the mother or the child. So that's coming up. The week of July 24th is when we're launching that. And so maybe I'll line you up with some details. And if uh, you wanted to kind of attend the event and report on it and share it with your listeners, I'd I'd really appreciate that. No, for sure. Listen, I really appreciate your time. You know, I know you, you know, have somebody just kind of reach out (laughs) that you don't know anything about, you know, I I appreciate your courage in in the work you're doing for sure. And for you uh, taking a leap uh, to join me on the podcast today. And, um, just God bless you for going out there and and doing what you can with your, the life experience you've had to try to educate and, and help people. It's inspiring to me, and I feel really fortunate that I'm getting more and more connected to people like you. So, Deanna, mm-hmm. just thanks for being, joining me today on Upthinking Finance. Well, thanks, Emerson. It was a pleasure. Emerson Fersh is a registered representative with and securities offered through LPL Financial. Member FINRA, SIPC. Advisor services offered through LPL Financial, a registered investment advisor and separate entity from Capital Investment Advisors. The opinions voiced in this podcast are for general information only and are not intended to provide specific advice or recommendations for any individual. To determine which strategies or investments may be suitable for you, consult the appropriate qualified professional prior to making a decision. The guest speakers and the companies they represent are not affiliated with or endorsed by LPL Financial or Capital Investment Advisors. Individual tax and legal matters should be discussed with your tax or legal expert. Economic forecasts set forth may not develop as predicted and there can be no guarantee that strategies promoted will be successful. All performance referenced is historical and is no guarantee of future results. All indices are unmanaged and may not be invested into directly. There is no assurance that the techniques and strategies discussed are suitable for all investors or will yield positive outcomes. The purchase of certain securities may be required to affect some of the strategies. Investing involves risks, including possible loss of principal.